Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Mike uh, lets me uh, preach on what I want to sometimes, and other times he tells me to stay with the program, and this Sunday is one of the Sundays that he's told me to stay with the program, so our text is in uh, Luke uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. This is what God says. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. You may be seated. It's always a tragedy when people fail to live up to their promise. This uh, happens frequently in the world of sports. Remember Johnny Manziel? Back in uh, 2012 and 2013, he amazed us as the quarterback of Texas A&M. At that time, he was called uh, Johnny Football. He was the epitome of what it meant to be a football player. But in 2014, he became a professional. And from there, things have only gone downhill for Johnny Manziel. One of his fellow players said that his rookie year was a 100% joke. And at the beginning of this year, 2015, he had checked into a rehabilitation center and no one is talking about Johnny Manziel anymore. Or think about Tiger Woods, the golfer. When he was 32 years old, he had already won 14 majors. And no one questioned that he was going to supersede Jack Nicklaus's record of 18. But then in 2009, something happened. And from then on, Tiger Woods has never been the same. Just this weekend, he failed to make the cut 
at the British Open. That's two majors in a row now where he has failed to even make the cut. And next week he will be ranked 254th in the world. That's worse than Patsy Beatty. <laughs> And now people are wondering whether Tiger Woods will ever win a major again. It's always tragic when people fail to live up to their promise. And this happens in all areas of life. Certainly it happens in politics. Remember back in 1993, we were promised the most ethical administration in the history of America. And we all know how that turned out. Or think about the present administration who promised us that they would be the most transparent administration in U.S. history. And even the liberal media says this is the most secretive administration they have ever dealt with. And remember back in high school all those people who were voted most likely to succeed? What has happened to them? It's always tragic when people feel, fail to live up to their promise. And by the first century, this is what had happened to the people of the Old Testament. They had failed to live up to their promise. A religion that was based solely on the grace of God as witnessed by the Abrahamic covenant had become so corrupted by its leaders that it was indistinguishable from any of the other man-made religions. Rather than depending upon God's grace alone for salvation from sin, the leaders of the Jewish people were teaching that people had to be saved by doing good works as defined by men. That this is the case is proven by the woes that Jesus pronounced on the Pharisees. In Luke 11, he said, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves would not lift one finger to help them. Compare that with the gospel that Jesus Christ was preaching. He said in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul lamented the fact that the Jewish people had failed to live up to their promise. He said this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. These Jewish people had received 
so much grace at the hand of God, and yet they had rejected that grace, and they had chosen to be like everyone else, depending on their own good works for salvation, and teaching other people to do the same thing. It's always tragic when people fail to live up to their promise. The major point of my sermon this morning is this. People who have received so much grace should be a people of grace. People who have received so much grace should be a people of grace. That was the promise of the Jewish people. And that is our promise as followers of Jesus Christ today. Now, how can we live up to our promise to be a people of grace? Our text this morning mentions three ways that we can do that. The first way that we can live up to our promise to be a people of grace is by not being an obstacle to those who are seeking God. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourself. Have you ever told anyone to go to hell? Maybe not in so many words, but by your attitude, your conversation, or your behavior. I remember an incident uh, that took place over 40 years ago now. Susan and I were members of the Bible Church of Little Rock and uh, the young couples class uh, organized a hayride out in the country one time. And I don't know how it all began, but uh, during that hayride, people began to tell jokes, and the content of those jokes quickly went from bad to worse. Most of them were based on sex or race. The sad part about that is that There was a young couple along for the ride who was new at the church, and they were a racially mixed couple. They hadn't been coming to the church more than two or three weeks, and we never saw them again after that night. Now, I don't know if it was the events of that night that drove them away, But I can't help but think that the events of that night could not have in any way attracted anyone who was seeking the God of grace, who we claimed to believe in. I can only think that the events of that night would have served as an obstacle to anyone who was truly seeking the God of grace. I don't know if this young couple were believers, 
I don't know if they were young Christians, but it haunts me to this day whether in some way we were an obstacle to them either coming to Christ or growing in Christ. After 40 years, I can still remember their names, and I often wonder what has become of them. Again, I don't know if they were believers or not. I don't know if they were young Christians. But certainly, our behavior, our attitude, and our conversation that night would have been an obstacle to someone who was seeking the one true God. Have you ever told anyone to go to hell? You see, this is what the Pharisees were doing. Not only by their teaching, but also by their attitudes, their conversation, and their behavior. And this is, again, why Jesus says in his woes that he pronounced upon them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice, a much, twice as much a son of hell as you are. And again, he says to them, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and have hindered those who were entering. You see, the Pharisees were not only failing to accept the gospel of grace preached by Jesus Christ themselves, but they were also hindering those who were seeking God, who were seeking grace. They did this, of course, by their teaching that salvation from sin is not by grace, that it had to be earned by works, but they also did it by their attitude, their conversation, and their behavior. The Pharisees looked down on those who were coming to Jesus. The sinners, the tax gatherers, the outcasts, the poor and the sick. They looked on them with contempt. They flaunted their own self-righteousness. They gave the impression that they were better than everyone else. And by the way... Those are attitudes and conversations and behavior that we are prone to even in churches that are very doctrinally sound. I remember standing in line in a grocery store one time and I heard a lady talking to her friend and saying that she had quit going to church and her friend asked her why. And she said, I've been going to that church. And she called the church by name. She said, I've been going to that church for 30 years now. And I just got tired of trying to be perfect. Now, I knew the church that she was talking about. And it is a solidly evangelical church. I know the gospel is preached there. But is it possible that by 
our attitude and our conversation and our behavior that we give people in these kinds of churches the impression that we are better than other people. That that is what makes us acceptable to God, thereby denying the very doctrine of grace that may be preached in that church. A seminary, uh, or a professor of seminary that I had said one time to us in an evangelism class, he said, our job is not to make people like us. Our job is to realize that we are just like them, without hope apart from the grace of God given to us freely. You see, this is why Jesus says to his disciples, mind you, He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to his disciples. He says, watch yourselves. Now, things that cause people to be led astray and to reject God are bound to come. Jesus says that. In a sinful, fallen world, that's unavoidable. We can no more eradicate the things that cause people to be led astray and to reject God than we can eradicate kudzu from the south. These things are bound to come. But we can keep ourselves as a people of grace from ourselves becoming an obstacle to those who are seeking God. So the first way that we can live up to our promise of being a people of grace is by not being an obstacle to those who are seeking God. The second way that we can live up to our promise to be a people of grace is by forgiving one another. Jesus goes on to say, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Now, when Jesus says here, if your brother sins, rebuke him, he is not giving us permission to be the sin police. In another place in Luke, in chapter 6, he warns us against this when he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your own eye. So we must be careful about being overly concerned about our brothers and sisters' sin and disregarding our own. In light of the context here, where Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him, he is probably talking about sins that have been committed against us. 
But even here, we have to be careful. The word rebuke is a strong one. But we have to understand it within the context of what the scripture says about how we are to rebuke a brother or sister who has sinned against us. Rebuking is never for the purpose of putting the other person down. It's for the purpose of building the other person up. In Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and verse 29, it says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I remember an incident where after preaching a sermon one Sunday, a man came up to me and he told me that I had said something wrong, something that uh, could even lead people astray, he was afraid, from the gospel of grace. Now, I'm different uh, from all of you out there. Uh, I don't like being rebuked. <laughs> and especially not uh, by a layman. I mean, who is a layman to question anything I say from up here in the pulpit? This is supposed to raise me above contradiction. But this man was so humble and so gentle in the way that he approached me that it totally disarmed me. And after talking for a while, I had to agree that he was right. And the next week, I apologized not only to him, but to the entire congregation. And you know, after the service that Sunday, he came up to me and he said, what you did this morning makes me think not less of you, but more. You see, the way this person rebuked me was characterized by grace. I could tell by the way he approached me, by, by his demeanor, that he in no way wanted to offend me. Instead, he was simply concerned about the gospel of grace being portrayed accurately. And by doing the rebuking that he did and the way he did it in, he benefited me and hopefully the congregation as well. But when someone whom we have rebuked apologizes, Jesus goes on to say that we are always supposed to forgive him. That's what it means when it says that we are to forgive seven times seven. That doesn't mean 49 times is enough. It's a way of saying you are to always forgive someone who apologizes or who asks for your forgiveness. Now let me say this. We can forgive without being asked to forgive. This is what Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prayed that prayer while they were crucifying him. No one was asking him for forgiveness, but he granted it anyway. And by the way, granting forgiveness is probably the healthiest thing that we can do for ourselves emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. 
I remember uh, when I was a, a little boy, I guess I was about 10 or 11 years old, my brother and I were uh, uh, playing games we shouldn't have been playing, but we were throwing corn stalks um, at each other like spears, and of course the rule was you were supposed to aim uh, below the waist, uh, which nobody paid any attention to. And my brother hit me right here in the lip with his corn stalk, and it totally split my lip, and they had to put stitches in it, and uh, there's still a scar there uh, today. Uh, I even shaved my beard so you could verify that story um, uh, afterwards. Uh, but, uh, you know, that hurt. And I don't remember my brother ever asking for forgiveness for that sin. But, you know, I learned that if I continued to pull that wound open to show everybody what a rotten person uh, my brother was, or to just remind myself of what a rotten person, that that would never heal. But letting that go and letting that heal, whether my brother asked for forgiveness or not, was the best thing I could do for myself. And the same is true when it comes to forgiving people for things they have done to you, whether they ask for forgiveness or not. But certainly if they ask for forgiveness, we're supposed to give it. And I know people have asked me, this just seems impossible. Like the disciples were saying, Lord, increase our faith. And look how Jesus responds to them. Basically what he is telling them is there's no problem with your faith. It's not more faith that you need. What you have to realize is what a great God you have. And even a little faith in this great God accomplishes great things. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I think many of you are familiar with uh, the parable of the servant that we find in, in Matthew 18, where we are told that this man who has been forgiven so much is unwilling to forgive so little. If you add the quantities up there, the man who was forgiven much was forgiven something like $10 million. But when he was asked to forgive a debt of $120, he was unwilling to forgive. You see, that's, that's what's unreasonable. It's unreasonable for us who have been forgiven so much to be unwilling to forgive so little. Remember, we are guilty of cosmic treason. We're guilty of regicide. It's our sin that put to death the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we've been forgiven that, all of that and more. Nothing that we are ever asked to forgive will begin to measure up to how much we have been forgiven. So no, it's not unreasonable to forgive, to always forgive, because that is the way that God has dealt with us. So the second way that we can live up to our promise to be a people of grace is by forgiving one another. And the third way that we can live up to our promise to be a people of grace is by being humble about our accomplishments. 
Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me? While I eat and drink, after that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant, thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. In other words, what Jesus is prohibiting here is self-promotion. This is something, again, that uh, the Pharisees were very guilty of. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus addressed it in chapter 6 when he says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen of them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. We're not to promote ourselves. All these things these men were doing, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting are only things that we should do. There is nothing noteworthy about them. They are simply doing the things that believers in God, as Christians today, should do. There is no reason to promote ourselves in any way. And by the way, I think that uh, is a message that is lost on the church today. I think there's just altogether too much uh, self-promotion today. A friend of mine took his grandson this last week to a traveler's game and he said, uh, well, first of all, he told me he spent $31 before the game even began. Uh, but then he went on to say, well, they saw this place at the back of the field that had all these blow-up uh, games and things for people to play on. And his grandson told him he wanted to go over there and play. And so he took him over there. But when, and when they got there, there was this sign that said that it was sponsored by the church at Rock Creek. But when they approached these bouncy games, uh, a lady came up to them and said, that will be $4. Uh, well, my friend is tight, and so, of course, he said, no. He said, even his grand said, well, that's outrageous. So I don't know how good this uh, self-promotion of the church uh, was, but it just seems like there's altogether too much of that. And the Bible is clear that we are not supposed to. To promote ourselves as I think it was Mark Twain that said it's the publicity it gives itself that kills the skunk and certainly it's the publicity that Christians give themselves that kill our effectiveness and certainly kill our rewards in heaven we are not to promote ourselves no matter what our accomplishments there is no reason no biblical reason for promoting ourselves, for boasting and bragging about what we have accomplished. Now, I want to qualify uh, this teaching in two ways. 
First of all, it is not wrong to receive the praise of other people. In Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 2, it says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, someone else and not your own lips. It's okay for other people to praise us. It's just that we're not supposed to promote ourselves. And by the way, we need to learn to accept praise and thanks when they are offered graciously as well. That's something that preachers have a hard time learning. I remember one of our professors at seminary also telling us that uh, we had to learn that lesson, that when people said thank you for something, just thank them back. Uh, You don't have to uh, try to spiritualize it. As he said, uh, one person had when at the end of the sermon, a lady came up to him and said, Pastor, that was just a wonderful sermon. And of course, this pastor couldn't accept that. He said, no, no, ma'am, it was just Jesus. It was just Jesus. To which the old lady said, no, it wasn't that good. (laughs) So it's okay to receive the praise of other people. What Jesus is warning us against here is self-promotion. And then also let me qualify this by saying that this parable is not teaching us about how God thinks about us. It's teaching us about how we ought to think about ourselves. We are to be humble. We are to realize that after all has been said and done, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. We have only done what we should have done. In fact, God treats us in a very different way. He actually does reward us. He treats us in the total opposite way that this master that he talks about in this parable, treated his servant. In Luke chapter 12, he talks about uh, these men who have served him. And it says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. He will recline at table and will come and wait on them. So in other words, the way God treats us is very different from the way this master in this parable treated his servants. But again, the lesson in this parable is about how we ought to think about ourselves. It's not how God thinks about us. Because the truth of the matter is that our God is so gracious and so loving that he does reward unworthy servants who have only done what they were supposed to do. So the third way that we can live up to our promise to be a people of grace is by being humble about our accomplishments. It's always tragic when people fail to live up to their promise. And that is a possibility not only in the world of sports, not only in the world of politics, not only in the rest of life, but it's also a possibility in our spiritual life. And that, again, is why Jesus says to his disciples, watch yourselves. Because it is always a tragedy when people fail to live up to their promise to be a people of grace. To be a people of grace who are a benefit 
and a blessing to others rather than being a hindrance and a curse. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1 it says, Do not receive the grace of God in vain. And that is my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do not doubt that you have poured out your grace upon us. Father, we have received salvation from sin at great cost to you freely. Your word tells us that even after being saved, that everything pertaining to life and godliness has been granted to us in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. It goes on to tell us that the riches of grace have been lavished upon us. Father, you have not been stingy with us. You have poured out grace upon grace. Father, may we think on these things. May we think on what a great God you are. And may we strive then to live up to our promise to be a people of grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.